1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Eric Ash about his new account of the draining of English fens during the 17th century, entitled The Draining of the Fens, Projectors, Popular Politics, and State Building in Early Modern England. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Mark. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Well, I am a professor of history at Wayne State University. Um, I was actually trained in history of science and technology, uh, but I was hired to be a British historian, which is where my research specialization is. Uh, and so I've been sort of straddling a bit of history of science, technology, a bit of uh, British po- political history. And with the current project, I've been getting more involved in social history and environmental history in particular.
1: So uh, it's, a, it's, it's been an evolution for me along the way. It's interesting how so many of those things come together in your book. And that's one of the things I found very fascinating about as I read it was that you're touching upon so many different dimensions that shape what maybe half a century ago would have been seen primarily from a political or a social perspective. But as you show in the book, it really does bring together a lot of different threads about uh, geoengineering, uh, under, you know, the relationship between man and nature made for a very fascinating read. Thank you. Um, some of the, um, the books that I have found most useful by others,
0: uh, historians like Steve Hindle and Tim Harris, uh, have, I, I think they would think of themselves in many ways as social historians, but I encountered them through an interest in political history. And I think there's been a lot of really good work done in the last couple of decades, uh, that tries to tie in the, the real lived experience of real-life people who are also part of a political environment, uh, have to deal with a, a national government, have to deal with local authorities, uh, and have to interact in the law courts. There's, there's all sorts of ways in which normal everyday life and politics uh, intersect. That's as true today, of course, as it was in the 17th century, but I've, I've really enjoyed the way the social history and the political history uh, and also the environmental history, that the lived environment is a, is a part of the story, uh, and the way in which all those those elements have interacted. What brought you to this topic? What what led you to write this book? Uh, I was uh, doing my dissertation, finishing up my dissertation in 1999 or 2000. Uh, I was at Princeton University, and Tony Grafton was my advisor. Uh, my first uh, my dissertation and first book project were were about um, technical expertise. Uh, the the um, the Technical knowledge, the, the ability to do things that most people were not able to do and the way in which that interacted with the with the state, uh, the, the, a monarchy in, in Britain that was trying to uh, become more powerful, can get more control of both the people and also the environment uh, to undertake larger projects than, than would have been possible 100 or 200 years earlier. Uh, but needed to find people who had this rare knowledge, and that was really where my first project was coming from. And In the midst of that, Tony Grafton told me that when I was done with that, I might want to look into the, the draining of the fens in the 17th century. He, he told me he thought there were quite a few sources out there that turned out to be um, a, a, a huge understatement there's there's uh <laughs> tens of thousands of sources uh, but also it dealt with very much these issues of technical knowledge and the, the rise of, a, of an increasingly powerful nation state
1: trying to shape its environment and make itself more powerful now uh, we've been talking about the fens i was wondering if you could uh, start us off by explaining in in uh for a bit just exactly what they were and why it was that in the uh Sixteenth and seventeenth centuries, there was this concerted effort to drain them sure uh, the, the, so the fens um, capital capital
0: f the fens as a region in England is a uh, an area of about thirteen hundred square miles near a bay uh, called the Wa. If you look at a map of Britain, uh, you find London, and then there's a big lobe of um, East Anglia that sticks out to the to the northeast of there, uh, and then East Anglia kind of wraps around in a little um, a bay, and that bay is called the Wash. And once upon a time, the entire Fens would have been a, a um, part of that bay. Uh, it- It's really just a giant river delta area. And so over centuries, uh, much of that bay silted up partly through riverine silting and partly through uh, tidal silting. Uh, And as a result, that created a a large body of land, which is uh, very close to sea level. It's above sea level, but, but just barely above sea level. Uh, it 's very, very flat the way river deltas often are, and because of those features, it is prone to flooding, particularly in wetter seasons like winter uh, and also during uh, storm surges with a with a tidal surge that comes in uh, it 's not england 's only wetland there 's the Somerset marshes in the west of the country. Um, there are coastal marshes like this all over northern Europe that experience actually very similar uh, issues, but the fens was uh, was undertaken as a single unit of drainage. Um, right around the same time, uh, or there are a series of projects that were undertaken right
1: around the same time. Uh, and so it's,
0: it's come to have this sort of regional identity.
1: And as you explain, uh, the issues that led people to undertake this draining had not deterred people from settling in it for centuries. As you describe, when they are beginning to discuss this project in the 16th century, you're talking about a population of people who were already living there who have vested interests and who have made uh, quite successfully a living out of uh, out of the environment there.
0: Yes. Uh, and one of the things that's uh, that's come out of this project or, or, or and projects like it um, environmental history and ecologists used to tend to think of a stasis model uh, for an environment and an ecological system would achieve a stasis. And unless something happened to change, the, the delicate balance, it would largely continue as it had always been. Um, that's a, a model that's now out of favor. We now understand just how much the earth and its climate, uh, change, uh, on their own, in, independent of human action, uh, through the centuries and the millennia. Uh, and the fens is no exception. There were, there are periods of, uh, of, of lower sea levels or higher sea levels globally, uh, that impact, uh, regional climates, and the Fens is one such area. At a time when the Earth's climate is a bit warmer, uh, when sea levels are perhaps a bit lower, when storm surges are not so severe, the Fens could be inhabited and indeed well improved. Um, at other times, they became a lot less hospitable, and one of the things that we now think is taking place in England in the 16th century uh, is that the medieval climate of the Fens, which was relatively hospitable to human uh, habitation, was was worsening. Uh, with the advent of the Little Ice Age, uh, there was a great deal of climatic upheaval in uh, in northern Europe and, and globally during that period, um, and one of the things that we believe may have been happening is more severe storms, uh, somewhat higher sea levels, and as a result, uh, the Fens became more more prone to more severe floods than they had been uh, in the 13th or 14th century. And so what had evolved as a very prosperous medieval culture uh, was becoming increasingly unsustainable by, by 1550 or so.
1: And as you explain, this was not necessarily a new challenge for the people that lived in the region and that they already had institutions in place designed to address issues of flooding and to develop infrastructure to deal with it. I was wondering if you could explain a bit about that infrastructure, because it's very critical to your overall uh, tale in the book.
0: Yes, the um, the medieval approach to the Fens was to accept them on their own terms. They were inhabitable uh, as long as you didn't try to live in areas that were known to flood every single year. So the, so the worst quality land, you, you just would not build habitations in. You'd live along the periphery of it. Uh, You could still exploit that area as uh, primarily grazing land for cattle. Uh, or sheep, um, sometimes horses as well, and they, the agricultural economy of the Fens was a pastoral economy. They didn't try to plant grain where they couldn't plant grain. Uh, instead, they grazed livestock where the river flooding in particular, uh, every time the rivers would flood, every winter they would flood regularly, and that was inconvenient, but it was also fairly predictable. You knew about when the floods were going to arrive, about how bad they'd be in, a, in an average year, and about when they would recede. And once they'd receded, they left a lot of silt deposits. Uh, The floodwaters would leave silt deposits, and grass would grow very prolifically in this area. And so uh, it was wonderful for grazing livestock as long as the floodwaters did, in fact, recede. Um, And so it was a pastoral economy. They grazed uh, cattle, sheep, and horses. They had a dairy industry. They had meat fattening, uh, beef fattening in particular, uh, and so accepting the Fens on their own terms meant accepting them as land that flooded annually. And if it didn't flood annually, you wouldn't be able to exploit it in this way. Uh, so the key to managing the Fens and prospering there was to not fight the floods, but to manage those floods, to try to keep them as predictable uh, and a- as possible so that you you didn't have um, – didn't they, they receded, the floodwaters receded when they were supposed to, and so that the grass could grow and the cattle could feed. Um, what that means for the Finlanders is that they have evolved a series of, um, institutions, uh, local bodies called commissions of sewers, uh, which is a local government institution. Uh, then the job of the commissions of commissioners of sewers is to oversee maintenance on the drains that keep the region dry in the, uh, in the summer months. Uh, so there, they would look and see if the, Various drains and rivers were flowing as they should they weren't getting choked up with reeds and and silt uh, and whenever they found a problem they would figure out who was responsible for fixing it and assess them uh, a fine if they did not fix it um, but they did not their their mandate was not to stop flooding their mandate was to try to make sure that the region's drainage network functioned optimally so that the flooding
1: did what it was supposed to do and very critically the uh, commissioners of sewers were men who were local. Uh, this was basically for the uh, local, local government.
0: Exactly. Uh, by definition, and the and the 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 institution of commissions of sewers uh, goes back at the local level uh, in England's various wetlands, at least as far as the 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 13th century. Um, but when they, even as they became more institutionalized, more formalized, and the, the crown, the medieval English crown was, was granting commissions of sewers, they were understood to be local bodies. Uh, you, you would, you were required to serve if you were named to a commission of sewers, but only in your own county. And the idea was to get a bunch of prominent local landowners who understood the fact who understood where the problems in the fens were likely to crop up, who knew uh, who owned which bodies of of land, uh, and who was responsible for maintaining which drains and rivers, uh, so that when problems arose, the most knowledgeable local people could figure out exactly what was going on and what to do about it.
1: Now, you described how the environment was changing during the 16th century and how it was happening as a result of the changes related to the Little Ice Age. But there was also a political change that was taking place uh, during the 16th century as well that also plays a major role in the story that you tell. And I was wondering if you could describe that political change and how it began to shape this issue of, of draining the fence.
0: Yes, Um We don't really know why the flooding seemed to get worse. We know that from from reports that the flooding did seem to get worse um, year to year, starting around 1570. Um, The current theory is that it was probably the Little Ice Age that was having the greatest impact, but there are other ideas that that probably had an impact as well, one of which is the destruction of the monasteries in the area. Um, Through the Middle Ages and, indeed, back into the early Middle Ages, Um, This flooded region had been seen as an attractive locale for um, for religious communities, those who wanted to get away from the secular world and lead spiritual lives in the wilderness. uh, The Fens were a good place to do that. They were very isolated. And so Uh, From the earliest days of English Christianity, this had been a region that was a center of monastic life. Uh, There were many monasteries and convents throughout the Fens. Um, Over centuries, many of them became quite powerful and wealthy and owned a great deal of land. Um, They were institutional landowners. That is to say, they they never died out. They never sold their land holdings. And so they were very, very stable. And the monasteries were not a Perfect at maintaining their drainage ditches and canals, uh, but they were, at least everyone knew who was responsible for it and, uh, and, and who owned which chunks of land because they'd been owned by uh, whatever monastery for hundreds of years. Uh, with the uh, advent of the English Reformation in the middle of the 16th century, um, monastic communities were targeted. Uh, they were seen as Catholic holdovers, uh, they were not in favor, and so starting under Henry VIII and continuing under his successors, the monastic communities were eradicated from England and their land holdings were confiscated by the crown, became part of crown land holdings, But of course, uh, Henry VIII would grant tracts of land to his buddies. Uh, those tracts of land would be subdivided and sold and subdivided and sold again. Uh, and so starting around 1550, there was an enormous amount of turnover in who owned land in the Fens. Uh, often the land holdings would change uh, several times in the course of 25 years such that often no one really knew who owned certain plots of land that used to be owned by a monastery. Uh, They may have changed hands half a dozen times, and the new owner may not be a local uh, inhabitant of the Fens. It may be somebody who lives in London or some other county. Uh, and that made it enormously difficult to figure out who was responsible for certain maintenance activities. Uh, it was entirely possible the new landowners didn't even know they were responsible for such things. They would not have been uh, local or local fee- people, and so they, they might not have known what they were supposed to do. And if the locals didn't know who to assess the given fines, um, that meant that
1: repairs did not get done. I'm thinking about another aspect of that challenge as well, which is that these people who are outside – Probably were much less interested in dealing with these local entities, and probably more comfortable dealing with a government that's probably closer to them geographically, which is the one in London. Added to which, their attitude as to how to make these lands pay was probably tied much more towards the uh, the, the, the the cultivating agriculture of of growing crops rather than the uh, the the grazing culture of having uh, cows and sheep and so forth.
0: Yes, when the landowners began to acquire land in the fens, who were not themselves Fenlanders, uh, they were not prepared to deal with a pastoral economy that was fairly modest in scope. Um, most of the fens that was not uh, open to cultivation, which was the vast majority because of flooding, uh, was uh, exploited in common. So it was large tracts of common land, uh, which means that it, it's owned by somebody as part of somebody's estate. Uh, but it tends to be open to grazing for all of the inhabitants of that particular manor or estate. Uh, and so it was exploited in common. It did not generate rental revenue. Uh, and that worked fine as long as all you were trying to do was was graze your livestock. When outside landowners come in, uh, they're interested in, in exploiting the land a lot more intensively. They would like to grow grain there. Um, they're interested, many of them, in drainage on the basis simply of, of turning What they see as as wasteland into good farmland and also uh, land that is currently not generating any rental revenue into land that would yield. Um, They're not particularly open to the ideas of the commissioners of sewers, uh, who the the traditional bodies who are interested in just maintaining the flooding as it is. They would actually like to change the landscape to make it uh, more cultivatable, more profitable more prosperous. And for the life of them, they can't understand why the Fenlanders don't see that this is the smart thing to do. Um, the Fenlanders, for their point of view, see this as, as not only uh, undesirable, but impossible. The land is what it is. It's always been this way. Uh, and there's really no reason to turn it into grain-growing land. It works just fine as what it is. So that, that culture clash was a, was a major element as well.
1: When does this clash begin, And how does it initially play out?
0: Well, according to what I'm arguing in the book, and and others might not have the same interpretation, but I believe that the, uh, the, the, the push for drainage really begins in the 1570s. And the reason initially is that the condition of the Fens seems to have been getting worse starting around that time. And what makes me say that is that the Privy Council, uh, the chief body of advisors to the the queen, Queen Elizabeth at that point in time, um, they had to run – we're talking about maybe two dozen men who had to run the entire kingdom and its foreign policy. Um, So these are very busy people with an awful lot on their plates. And yet from 1570 onward, they become very preoccupied with issues of Fenland drainage. Um, we, we know that there were worse incidents of flooding than there had been in, in time out of mind. Uh, the Privy Council became very interested in helping to uh, to manage local drainage affairs in the Fens, uh, and what they found was that these commissions of sewers, who are uh, very local bodies, they often were responsible for very small plots of land that, that each commission would, would be responsible for only its local area, um, but the region was breaking down. And so you have all of these local interests that are incapable of working together around a regional solution. The Crown steps in through the Privy Council to try to negotiate some, uh, some settlement to all of the many disputes, but they always fail. Uh, they, they cannot get the local commissioners to agree and work together. Uh, The condition of the land there continued to deteriorate, uh, and eventually the Crown became convinced that it was going to take a much more central, coordinated, deliberate effort to fix the fence, something of which the local authorities were clearly not capable.
1: One of the things I found very interesting about reading your book is the degree to which there are certain issues at play here which are very similar to discussions that you hear in uh, contemporary uh, culture today, on one level, you have this as a clash between local uh, rule versus central government, but you also have this other dimension, which is these uh, individuals who come in and they have these schemes for draining the land and it 's basically private enterprise uh, that that the, these these projects that uh, that are uh, that they 're proposing, but they're ones that are hoping to harness uh, central government to override these local objections, which you, you can tell from your account, they get increasingly frustrated with. It's like, this person complains, they might address that, then this person complains. After about the twenty or 30th complaint, it seems like they're, they're at a point where it's like, why don't we just have somebody tell them what to do? <laughs> exactly. Um, the, the thing you have to remember politically,
0: uh, and I'm always stressing this with my students as well, uh, is to remember that the 16th and 17th century European monarchies are uh, are exceptionally weak by modern standards. These are not modern states. Uh, these are states with, with several dozen people, uh, as opposed to several thousand people who report directly to the monarch, uh, at least outside the, the, the king or queen's own household, The people who are running the realm. Uh, it's just not a very big group. And in England in particular, there is no standing army. There is no professional police force. Um, This is, by any modern standards, a very weak and also, by the way, broke um, institution. The the national government, the the, the royal government uh, is constantly cash-strapped. It's an era of rampant inflation. Warfare is incredibly expensive. Um, the state doesn't have a lot of spare cash. The, spa- the state does not have a large body of people working for them. And so the Tudor state was very into privatization. Um, if they could find some private individual to pay for something that they wanted done, they were perfectly happy to cut a deal with that person uh, such that uh, they would somebody would undertake a project like draining land at the, their own expense. Uh, and the state would reward them with a share of the drained land. Uh, and then the, but the, it would cost the crown nothing. And this was viewed as a win win. Um, the the person who undertakes the drainage uh, in the parlance of the time, they were called projectors, uh, people who introduced the idea of a project, who proposed a project to the monarchy. Uh, these projectors would undertake whatever it was they, they said they were going to do, and there were dozens of different kinds of projects. Uh, at their own expense, the crown would uh, yield any benefit from that uh, and would give a share of those profits or gains to the projector. Um, in the case of draining the fens, this was seen as uh, the crown could settle a long-standing troublesome issue and improve the, the lot of the entire commonwealth. A projector would become a wealthy landowner, but only after they'd successfully drained the land. And the people in the Fens who had to give up some of their land to the projector, well, they would have less land to work with, but it would be much higher quality land. At least that was the theory. Uh, So the Fenlanders would live on better land. The projectors would be well rewarded for their efforts, and the crown would uh, would be yielding higher revenues. Of course, the crown is a large landowner in the Fens as well, so their lands would also stand to be improved. Um, That was the theory. Um, The problem with projectors is that they were seen by many, and rightly so, as frauds and charlatans um, and and imbeciles, uh, people who uh, had pie-in-the-sky theories about what they could do. Many of them didn't make sense. Many of them were obviously impossible. Um, They had a very dark reputation in many circles, not least among uh, some Crown Advisors. Uh, and though many of those projectors, not least among them, uh, drainage projectors in the fens, um, were among the most troubling. Um, they, they claimed they could could completely transform the landscape uh, at next to no cost to anyone. Uh, and many folks in the fens and elsewhere were skeptical. But the crown saw saw it as a good deal.
1: How did the locals fight back when they opposed what it was that the crown and these projectors were proposing?
0: Well, initially, the crown takes a a soft approach. Under Elizabeth and her successor, King James I, uh, the crown wanted to not force anything down people's throats. Uh, Both Elizabeth and James preferred to govern through consensus. Uh, They like to get everyone on board on the same page. uh, And so the idea was to pass laws that would enable projectors to come in and uh, reach contracts with local landowners um, to drain land in return for receiving a share of it. Uh, they expected the Fenlanders would love this idea. It turned out the Fenlanders were not very enthused about the idea. They, they saw no problem and certainly didn't want to give away up to a third of their land to have want that in the first place. Uh, and so the crown under Elizabeth and James, it, it's a story of, of many failed projects. Um, James, in fact, tried to undertake the drainage himself on more than one occasion as the, as the lead projector, thinking that the king would have credibility to to, um, to bring the Fenlanders into line. Uh, but we see the local authorities, these commissioners of sewers, they're not terribly uh, enthused about this idea, and they're able to use their institutional authority as well as their, their command of local knowledge and conditions – Uh, to stymie just about every project that came their way. If they were not interested, they had ways of making sure that uh, the projectors didn't get anywhere. And so the the first few chapters of my book are about um, various crown efforts to uh, bring the Fenlanders on board with drainage projects, which the Fenlanders uh, steadfastly refuse uh, to partake of.
1: I found the legal challenges to be one of the most interesting ones because it shows that contrary to the perception that you refer to as uh, of these people as being sort of uh, hay seeds and, and not very and sort of very uh, provincially minded, that they are very successful at, at, at various times in getting judgments that effectively uh, reaffirm their primacy in terms of this.
0: Early modern England was an exceptionally litigious society. These people sued each other and they sued each other early and often. Uh, if you were a landowner of any note and you lived out your full lifespan, you could expect to be sued uh, and probably to sue some of your neighbors at least once in your life, often many times. Uh, the law courts were were common haunts uh, for uh, English landowners throughout the realm. Uh, and so one of the ways in which the Fenlanders sought to protect themselves from drainage projects they didn't want, uh, particularly those in which the Crown was trying to um, to use a little stronger approach in compelling them to go along with the drainage project uh, was they would sue they uh, they would sue the, the law courts the uh, fenlanders who didn't appreciate that their commissioners or sewers were not putting up enough resistance might sue the commissioners um, some of these court cases actually made it made it quite far uh, in in the legal system so cook who during the 16 teens began to be um, concerned at what he saw as a growing pattern of uh, potentially, royal abuse of power, not necessarily the king abusing his power, but royal ministers who were uh, who were abusing the authority that they'd been given. Uh, he came to see the commissioners of sewers as one such group. Uh, whenever a commissioner of sewers uh, was interested in pursuing a drainage project uh, and would try to compel local uh, local inhabitants to go along with it. um some of these lawsuits eventually came before Edward Cook, and he eventually Uh, tried to completely subdue the commissioners of Sewers um, to take away a lot of their power because he saw it as the sign that the royal government was becoming too strong and and was indeed overstepping its authorities. Um, In the end, the crown wins that fight. Uh, The the court of chancery overruled uh, Cook, and you you have a, a legal battle that ends up with the crown and its advisors declaring that the commissioners of sewers can effectively act as they please. Uh, as long as they're working within due process, their authority in drainage matters is all but absolute. Um, but what interested me is that you have uh, Lord Ellesmere, Edward Cook, Francis Bacon, some of the greatest and most important uh, legal minds of the entire early modern era uh, were actually talking about draining the fens. Uh, that, that, was, that was one of the things that I really liked about that chapter was it showed that this was a live issue uh, at every level of, of government and legal concern.
1: And it's one that speaks to a broader trend that was taking place, because while on the one hand, as you describe it, the Tudor government was weak when you compare it to today, at the same, this is also a period at which the central government in England is getting stronger than it had been previously. And this, se- this seems to be... One aspect of it that we sometimes uh, don't often think about. We talk about you know what was happening with Charles the and his personal rule. We talk about uh, the the various ways which you start to see stronger central authority. But here you're seeing an early aspect of it that it has that that we don't often uh, you know really consider in details to the way in which it impacted. People who lived in regions like like East Anglia and who and how they experienced that shift that was slowly taking place.
0: Absolutely, um, the the period of, of, of the, the the sort of rise of, of absolutist monarchies in Western Europe in the 17th century is certainly not just an English story. Um, but the the Stuart monarchs, James the first and Charles the uh, first, were trying very hard to make the royal government in England, much more powerful and unitary uh, than it had been before, uh, certainly in the Tudor era. And they, too, are, are building upon trends that go back at least as far as Henry VIII and Henry VII um, of trying to make the crown more and more powerful vis-à-vis uh, England's other great landowners and the, the common people. Um, and the the Fen drainage is one, one symptom, one aspect of that change. Uh, it's telling, I think, that you we, – we see that um, – Elizabeth and James preferring to rule by consensus, uh, but James is is a little more aggressive than Elizabeth in trying to bring about that consensus. And then when James dies in 1625 and his son Charles I takes the throne, um, he's a lot less interested in consensus. He's more about getting his way. Um, he, he's, he's, he's happy to rule with consensus where possible, but he's happy to push on if consensus isn't possible. Uh, and there, Therefore, it's it's really only after 1625 uh, that you see drainage projects begin to actually go forward and transform the landscape. I think that's not an accident. The, the, the two things that changed with, with Charles coming to the throne, one of them is Charles, who was a, a monarch who was far less um, troubled about forcing his way on, on local landowners who weren't on board. Uh, but also, uh, Charles began to work... Very closely with a drainage engineer from the Low Countries named Cornelius Vermoyden, which gave him a source of knowledge and skill and expertise uh, that what that sewers uh, with Vermoyden on his side and drainage engineers like him, Charles had to rely a lot less on his commissioners of sewers uh, and could work around them and get around their opposition uh, when they stood in the way.
1: So, you have the beginning of these drainage projects, and you described the first one in some detail the hatfield level drainage and I was wondering if you could explain a bit about this drainage project in particular, how it differed from the previous proposals that uh, for the great level drainage, and then also uh how it based how it paved the way for the major drainage projects that followed
0: yes um i i, I I hemmed it hawed a great deal as I was researching this book about uh, exactly which drainage projects I should focus on and if I should focus on just one or, or all of them. Or, or uh, In the end, I decided on just two. Um, I, I talked about the Great Level Drainage, which was the, the largest single drainage project that, that England had in the 17th century, about 350,000 acres total. Uh, and the other one was the Hatfield Level Drainage, uh, which was much smaller, only about uh, a, a fifth the size, maybe 70,000 acres total, uh, in, in, perhaps even less than that. Um, Hadfield level is interesting. It was not contiguous with the Great Level. It was in a different part of the Fens, and as I say, it was much smaller, but it was the first major drainage project of anything like that scale that went forward and actually did change the landscape um, at the level of tens of thousands of acres. Uh, and it was also, it became in many ways the prototype for later drainage projects. What was done at Hatfield level in the late 1620s is very similar, both in terms of the technological approach to how the land was drained, and also in terms of the political approach uh, to forcing these projects through against a, a resistant landscape and, and population. Um, Hatfield really provided the model. Uh, so, what makes Hatfield level different uh, than the Great Level in particular, first of all, it's smaller. Uh, which, for the, the prototype project, was important. Seventy thousand acres was manageable um, to start out with. Uh, the other thing that was what was radically different was that uh, landowning patterns. Virtually all of the land in and around Hatfield Level that they wanted to drain was part of one estate or another, all of which were owned by the crown. And so, the crown, in this rather rare and unusual instance, did not have to coordinate or contract with any other landowners um it was the king's land and the king could do as he pleased with it to a much much greater extent um the land holding patterns the the people who lived on the land also had uh, a more tenuous lease system they they were not what they what we call freehold uh for the most part they they were copyhold uh there were more conditions on their leases of the land and of course their landlord is the king uh, which gives the king a much freer hand in forcing through a drainage project. So it was a, a perfect area in which to test some of these ideas, the, 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 a perfect place to have the first drainage project, because the king had the freest possible hand in deciding what would happen to the land, uh, and he was able to employ his drainage engineer, Cornelius Vermoiden. He was able to work around the commissioners of sewers who play very little role in the Hatfield-level drainage, uh, and it was much more of a, of a royal in-house
1: undertaking. I was wondering if you could briefly explain the drainage itself. What did these projects ultimately entail, and, and, and what sort of effort was required to complete them? So Vermuyden's
0: approach to draining land, and I should say that it was partially successful, Vermoiden's approach, uh, he uses much the same approach in the Great Level 20 years later, um, after Hatfield Level. Um, his approach has been controversial. It was partially successful. Engineers from the 18th century down to the present day have, have second-guessed the decisions that he made. Uh, but whether, whatever their merit, his approach to draining the uh, the wetlands of England was to straighten the rivers, Uh, Remember, these lands are very flat and very close to sea level, so the rivers that flow into them from the surrounding higher ground, what they call the uplands, uh, the the minute these rivers get into the fens, they hit this flat land and they slow down and they meander through this river delta area. They drop all of their silt because when they slow down, they're carrying a lot of silt. The minute they slow down, that silt settles out, so the riverbeds are constantly becoming shallower, uh, and that is why these regions are so prone to flooding. Vermoyden's approach in the Fens, realizing that the area was already above sea level, something he hadn't had to deal with back in the Low Countries, um, was to straighten the rivers, to dig new razor-straight rivers uh, that would flow toward the sea through the Fens as as, uh, directly as possible, and therefore take the greatest advantage of whatever limited gradient there was. The straighter the river, the faster it will flow in this, uh, this region where it's never going to flow all that fast. Uh, he would then build high banks along the rivers so that in a time of of, of surge uh, the the water would would have something to hold it in but he built these banks he liked to build them back uh, a good ways from the river itself uh, and sometimes as much as half a mile back from the river itself uh, so that when the flood water came, particularly riverine flooding, uh, the river would would rise, but it would rise and also become much wider before it reached the banks. The idea was to keep the flooding within the river bounds as much as possible uh, rather than spilling out into the countryside, where of course once once it overflows those banks and it hits the the very flat countryside, uh, the entire region is going to flood. So straighten the rivers and embank them and put the banks back a ways, uh, from the river itself to give it room to expand. Um, that was from Boyden's approach in the Hatfield level, and it was more or less the approach he took in the Great Level as well.
1: Now, these projects you described take place over the course of a half century and more, and they occurred during perhaps the most tumultuous period in, in English history, which is the Civil War and the Commonwealth. And as you described, that these projects uh, is that the locals who never really seemed to completely surrender to them were trying to take advantage of those events to open up new means of fighting back against these drainage projects.
0: Yes, uh, the Fens are a scene, uh, particularly the Hatfield level, are, are scenes of considerable violence um, during the Civil War period and interestingly before the Civil War period as well um, Hadfield level had uh, had one in, one area in particular called the Isle of axholm um, it was a bit of, of slightly higher ground in the midst of this this flooding region um, their land was just fine, and the their land did not require any draining. They were they were most militantly um, opposed to the draining of the Hatfield level. Um, they also had a medieval charter that that the, a, la- a landlord had given them hundreds of years earlier, declaring that their land would never be drained and improved against their will. Uh, so they have a very strong legal case. Um, they try to have recourse in the courts, but under Charles I, first, uh, their their law cases are are thrown out or are stymied. They have no recourse uh, through the law. And so that is when the violence begins. Uh, The Fens had not experienced a great deal of uh, rioting or violence before the 1620s. But in the 1620s, you start having some serious rioting take place, um, particularly in Hatfield level first. And that's not surprising because it's the first drainage project. Uh, and the riots are actually very severe. Uh, early modern riots in England are are almost a, a social safety valve. Um, they're, they they take place most commonly around issues of enclosure of common lands and also around the price of grain. Um, the the sort of bread riots and enclosure riots rarely do they target people. They're almost always targeted at property or or, or vandalism. What we would maybe call vandalism today. Uh, but the Fenland riots, having to do with with anti-drainage riots, actually are among the most violent uh, riots of the era. They they often did target people. Uh, workmen were beaten. There are there are stories of workmen and rioters being killed and some. Some of these riots, uh, and that's highly unusual for for rioting of this type, and that's all in the 1620s and into the 1630s uh, before the civil war even takes place. Um, once the the actual shooting starts, as as relations between parliament and the the monarchy break down completely in the early 1640s, um, some of the earliest violence in the war takes place in the Hatfield Level as the Fenlanders immediately seize the initiative. Uh, they destroy some of the drainage dikes that into the into the land, so the land becomes flooded again, and their their excuse for this is they, they wanted to prevent a royalist army from marching through. Um, but it's quite clear that, that as much as they might be interested in that, they're also quite interested in taking back land that they still believe is rightfully theirs uh, and restoring their way of life within it.
1: So they seize this initiative and then you have this change of government. One of the things I thought was interesting about your description of their, uh, of, of how the debates went forward during the Commonwealth period is how both sides tried to appeal to different aspects of the Commonwealth's uh, ideology, if you will, The, the uh, how they oftentimes are trying to, try to find the argument that would best appeal to either advance the project irrespective of the government or to shut it down, taking advantage of the changing government.
0: Yes, um, Once uh, very little uh, drainage activity takes place during the war years, of course, because they're fighting. Uh, once the king is defeated and finally executed in 1649, uh, and you have the interregnum, the, the, period, the 11-year period between the death of the execution of Charles I and the restoration of his son Charles II in 1660, um, Oliver Cromwell is responsible and, and in charge in England for, for most of that time under various uh, government regimes, but, but Cromwell is the consistent figure for the remainder of his life. Cromwell is is a key factor in this story because he of course is a Fenlander. He's from the county of Huntingdonshire which today is part of Cambridgeshire and is one of the the central Fenland counties. Uh, He knows the Fens. Um, He's been styled by historians since the 18th century at times, I think uh, misleadingly as Lord of the Fens. Uh, He was never anything of the kind, but you get the idea that um, Cromwell is a a guy who owns a lot of land in the Fens. He knows the Fens, Uh, and being a large, wealthy landowner, he realized that drainage would probably be in his best interest, along with some of the other very large landowners, most notably the Earls of Bedford, uh, who own a lot of land in this region as well. Uh, And so Cromwell is by no means opposed to the drainage, especially once he comes into power. Um, What's going on there? Well, one interpretation is Cromwell and and the earls of Bedford and and some of the other large landowners are draining the land, hoping that they'll um, enclose much of the former commons themselves and thereby greatly enrich themselves by increasing the value of their land. There's certainly some of that going on. Uh, But the rhetoric, uh, and I I think a lot of the rhetoric in in their minds is probably quite legitimate. What they see themselves as doing is improving the Commonwealth. This is also the great era of improvement. Um, Samuel Hartlieb and his... Um, network of correspondents are coming up with dozens of ideas for how to improve England, its education system, its agricultural system, uh, its its global uh, trade, its empire. This is the great era when there are no more rules. The the the, the, the tyrannous king has been killed. Um, we now are, are are smiled upon by God. Uh, there there is no limit to what England can do if only we're bold enough to to um, to to create to transform the nation into a the godly perfect nation that it ought to be. And one of the things they were interested in was agricultural improvement and particularly land drainage, Uh, improving the land, putting more land under the plow, increasing its productivity, uh, creating more employment opportunities for the indigent poor uh, and benefiting the entire commonwealth. And I I think they really do believe uh, certain aspects of that. They may well get rich doing this. Uh, but I don't believe it's in their minds. It's just about getting rich. They, they see themselves as genuinely benefiting England by improving what they still see as a bunch
1: of wasted, flooded land. So the project goes ultimately goes forward, and it continues after the restoration when Charles II comes in. I was wondering if you could describe the the legacy of the project as as it comes to completion. How what is what is left of the Fens and how how much of that has survived to the present day?
0: Yes. Uh, so the, the, the Hatfield-level project was completed in the 1620s and into the mid-1630s. Um, the real work on the Great Level, the much larger 350,000-acre drainage project, the Great Level, um, that work is undertaken primarily between 1649 and 1655. So that's entirely during the interregnum under Cromwell's regime. Um, and that project is considered completed uh, by 1655. Um, when Cromwell dies uh, and, and Charles II comes to the throne in 1660, um, that land is drained and it is newly valuable. Uh, and Charles also with with the return of royal land holdings uh, is also a, a large landowner in the Fens. He's, he's really not interested in undoing all of this. Uh, and so there's a bit of political embarrassment because all the laws that made this project possible were passed under what Charles obviously considers an illegitimate, uh, rebellious regime. They very quickly passed new laws to legitimize all of these uh, drainage projects after the fact so that there's, uh, there's as little disruption as possible. Uh, and after 1660, this land was, at least in theory, supposed to be drained. Um, it did not last for them, unfortunately. Vermoyden's plan was not a, a, a bad plan. He did succeed in draining uh, the Great Level, which was an enormous undertaking uh, for that era, one of the largest of its kind in the 17th century. Um, the problem that no one realized was that the land was made of peat. They knew it was made of peat, but when you drain peat, it shrinks. Um, the water... In the, in the peat is primarily responsible for keeping bacteria uh, from devouring the peat itself. Peat is just uh, incompletely decayed vegetable matter that piles up in layers that are often dozens of feet thick, uh, but it's just plant matter that hasn't decayed because it's constantly saturated with water that's either too acidic or too alkaline for, uh, for bacteria to live in. You take away the water, uh, and now the bacteria... Bacteria can get into that that soil and begin to digest it. Um, Also, when you put it under the plow and it's dry, uh, there was a lot of soil erosion. And so land that had been as much as 12 or 15 feet above sea level, after it's drained, rapidly began to settle and shrink, uh, such that some areas of the fens today are actually below sea level, which did not used to be. Uh, And even even the areas that are still above sea level are, are much closer to sea level than they used to be. And as a result, some of the rivers that Vermuyden built that were supposed to vent water to the, to the North Sea quickly um, began to silt up, slow down, and in some cases even flow the wrong direction. Um, as, the, uh, as, the, as the land that these rivers are flowing through settles, uh, they kept building up the riverbanks. And so what you see today is a, a striking landscape that remains very, very flat uh, and s- remarkably well-drained. Uh, but the rivers that drain it are in many cases 15 feet above the surrounding farmland, <laughs> uh, which is very surreal to stand on a riverbank and look down at farmland. Um, that that y- Something in your brain says this isn't right, uh, and indeed it's not right. Um, it also required pumping to get the water into those raised riverbanks. And so in the 18th century was the age of windmills, uh, wind pumps that would, would raise water and, and deposit it in the river so it could flow to the sea. Uh, and subsequent ages have given us new technologies, steam engine pumps, diesel pumps, and today there are electric pumps that operate constantly to keep this region dry. Uh, And if you don't pump the water into those rivers, which are now several feet above the surrounding land, uh, that area will become part of the North Sea again.
1: As you explained, though, in some places they are actually starting to undo some of these projects and return the land back towards more of a... uh, Pre-improvement environment.
0: Yes. uh, The Royal Society for the Preservation of Birds and the Wetlands Trust are two organizations uh, in which another um, interpretation of the fens has come about. Uh, The Middle Ages interpreted the fens as land that was flooded and was supposed to be flooded and that could be used just fine in its flooded state. Uh, Beginning in the late 16th into the 17th century, a new understanding of the land, that it was broken, that it had to be fixed so that it could be transformed into proper farmland where you could grow grain. Um, that, that the, the key to, to exploiting the fens was to fix them because they were obviously broken. Uh, in the 20th century, the latter part of the 20th century, you've seen a third wave of, uh, of interest in the fens that says, no, 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 it's not farmland, it's wetland. Uh, and wetlands are incredibly valuable. They are, uh, crucial, uh, ecologies. Um, They are uh, crucial water filters. Uh, Wetlands have an awful lot of ecological value that has been underappreciated for the last two or 300 years. Uh, And so there are various organizations that have been purchasing farms uh, and literally reflooding the land, reclaiming it as wetland. Uh, which takes very little time, by the way, and as little as five years, once you let the water return, uh, it doesn't go back to being what it was at, at the height of the, the medieval fens because there's been too much change. The land has settled, among other things. It's now a lot lower than it used to be. Uh, but very, very quickly, wetland plants come back, and with the plants come the birds, uh, such that you – an, uh, a, a land that looks like a wetland, looks like it might always have been a wetland, but that 30 years ago was probably a farm. Uh, and there are now hundreds and hundreds of acres that have been recovered this way, and they're they're purchasing more all the time.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm taking a little break uh, in between uh, big Book projects. Um, I'm, uh, but my, my next project I, am thinking of will probably be about Ireland. Um, The Fens were seen, even at the time, in some ways, as a dress rehearsal for Ireland. Uh, The 1590s and and onward, throughout the 17th century, are also a period of the English conquest of of Ireland, um, in which the English not only conquered Ireland as a a hostile foreign power, uh, but also saw that the only way that they would be able to pacify it, from their point of view, was to colonize it. Uh, So you have efforts to put large plantations of English Protestant settlers like Ireland, um, which is hostile from a political and religious standpoint as far as the English are concerned, but is also a hostile environment. Uh, Ireland has its its bogs and its fens, uh, and and is therefore uh, in need of the from the English point of view in need of the same kind of of, of repair and transformation that the Fens were in need of. Uh, it, it, Ireland is in some ways a tabula rasa uh, where the English can work on an even larger scale some of these transformations that they've employed in the Fens and they can actually do so with a much freer hand because um, even if the Fenlanders were, were railroaded out of court and were were put down by military force they were still freeborn Englishmen there was only so far that you could you could push them so many rights you could violate um, the Irish, the English have far fewer compunctions. Uh, they're they're Celtic, they're Catholic, they're rebellious, uh, and therefore, pretty pretty much anything the English want to do in Ireland, as far as they're concerned, uh, is only going to make the place a better place. Um, obviously, the Irish uh, have a have a very different point of view about this. Um, but I'm I'm interested in 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 moving not just not just land drainage, but on on English efforts to um, control. Um, ameliorate, transform, exploit the Irish landscape as well as the Irish people that they found living there. Uh, their perception of it as a broken place that, that needed English ingenuity and Protestant religion to fix it, uh, and the Irish efforts to resist uh, th- those incursions. So that's, it, it, in some ways, the people at the time saw the Fens as a, a trial balloon for, for for a much larger Irish project. Uh, in some ways that's the next logical place for me to go as well.
1: Wow, it sounds like a fantastic project. Best best of luck with it. it. Thank you. Uh, Eric, thank thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. My pleasure, Mark, and
0: thank you for having me.